Morning, everybody. Welcome. Decided to do a little lead in there. That's Jars of Clay. Dave McGuire was telling me he hadn't heard those guys in 20 years. And it's just kind of amazing to me how old that group is, but they're still good. That was a versified adaptation, uh, hymn, hymn adaptation of Psalm 51, uh, which we are going to look at a little bit today. Let's get started with prayer. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Father in heaven, please guide the study of your word by your spirit this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified as we open your word and learn from it, uh, and that you would get the glory in no one else. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Uh, well, this morning we're going to talk about uh, week three, which is uh, the Psalms are for you, part two. Uh, today we're dealing with repentance and thanksgiving and praise. Uh, so hopefully not as heavy as the last time, but uh, you never know. Uh, so we'll get going. We're going to start this morning in Psalm 32, put a thumb in Psalm 51, and then we're going to end in Psalm 103. All the scripture references should be there uh, in your outline. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, I'd appreciate it. And here we go. Let's read Psalm 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love, or, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, I'm going to address some of the difficult stuff up first and then get to some of the practical. And keep in mind, there's a lot of things we're going to talk about, but it will end with this is for you. Um, so expect that at the very end. And if I don't, please somebody raise your hand and keep me honest. So um, in his book, uh, Learning to Love the Psalms, Dr. Godfrey mentions that these are the Psalms of David, they're for Israel and then the church by extension, and also the Psalms of Jesus. And so for that, like Jesus would be praying the Psalms over us as part of his intercession or his session up uh, at the right hand of the Father. And so probably one of the most difficult things to address right up front is if these are the Psalms of Jesus, why are there penitentiary Psalms? Psalms for us to use in order to repent or describing the fact that somebody, namely here, David, has sinned. 
so does Jesus need to repent by that uh, logic? Well, the answer obviously is no. Um, what uh, we're going to first consider, uh, first, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and then Isaiah 53.6. I want to start with Isaiah f- uh, 53 is, um, is that he has borne our iniquities is the sense there. And then you can look up 2 Corinthians on the side. But um, the point is, if these are the Psalms of Jesus, and if Jesus bore our iniquities for us, then he has not sinned, but this is our sin placed on him that he is not necessarily confessing, but bearing on our behalf. So I wanted to address that up front. So can Jesus pray this over us? Yes. Did he sin? No. but he is the sinless sacrifice on whom our sin was placed. And so for that, that opens the door for us to be able to use these things appropriately. Just want to address that one up front. So if someone goes, hey, wait a minute, did Jesus ever sin that he needed these things to repent? The answer is no, we need to repent. And therefore, Jesus bore our sin, and this is our example text uh, for us. So specifically, going into Psalm 32, This is, just like the title says, a mascal of David. Keep in mind, and I mentioned this again a couple of times, or at least one more time today, that the titles are in every single older Hebrew manuscript that we have, meaning it's likely that these are inspired. That'll be important when we start to look at 51. But a mascal of David, more on a mascal in a second, but in time, so in the Psalter, Psalm 32 comes before Psalm 51. But in time, in the chronology, as it were, the scholarship basically thinks that Psalm 32 was written after Psalm 51 by David. Um, and so people know what Psalm 51 is. I kind of played a little, uh, a little um, music there that, that shows that that is David's repentance after the sin of Bathsheba. And then much later in his life, David writes Psalm 32. Keep that in mind. That'll be important in a second. So that all these things that he's saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's saying that not only about us, but about himself after, way after adultery and murder and confession for that. And so many years down, down the road, is he still carrying that? Is he carrying the consequences of that? Absolutely. If you look at First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, uh, yeah, absolutely. And all of Israel carries those consequences forward. But is he himself bearing that burden? No, that'll be important in a second. I know I'm promising a lot of stuff on down the line, but keep with me, I'll uh, pay, make it pay off in a second. A mascal, let's talk about what that is for a second. Um, there's a lot of scholarship on what exactly that word means. It could mean this or that or this or that, and then there's a lot of things that you can list it out. However, what I think the best explanation in this case is it's something that is didactic. That's a fancy word to say that it's for teaching. It's to instruct us. And so David is not only having this out as a prayer or as his own uh, example of his own personal experience, but he is using this explicitly to teach the reader. That will be important in a second as well. So what is he trying to teach us? Let's dive into that one. It starts with the text, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Those words should sound a little bit familiar. The whole Psalter starts off in Psalm 1 with this text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water 
that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We didn't get to talk about in the intro lesson the concept of imagery, so I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on it today. It'll, it'll come into um, some pretty good importance in all of these. So let's take a look at the imagery in Psalm 1. He, the man who walks not in, in the counsel of the wicked, is like, this is a simile, this is trying to paint for us a word picture that will create pictures in your mind to help you understand the meaning coming through. He is like a tree. We, I mean, there's trees out there. We can kind of see what those look like. We have a concept of a tree. It gets, bit, uh, it gets more detailed in a second here. Planted by streams of water. Expect that those roots in that tree are going all the way down to the ground and are going into that stream and that soil is soaked up by all that water flowing by. So if, if you've looked at rivers and bodies of water that have trees next to them, those trees are pretty healthy, right? The ground is kind of soft and those trees are actually really healthy because it's soaking in water, it's soaking in nutrients. It's planted by streams of water. So this is a good tree, it's a healthy one that yields its fruit in its season, it's productive. And so it's not like the fig tree that Jesus curses, right? It's something that actually, if I expect whatever fruit comes off the tree, when it's supposed to be there, it's by the nice stream of water, it's gonna be there. And its leaf does not wither. So that's the last thing talking about the tree. So what's, what is in our mind when we're talk, starting to think about this tree? It's a pleasant image. It's a productive tree. It's something you probably wanna be around. What is that supposed to teach us? In all that he does, as we're going back to the very beginning, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, he prospers. This is a good image. This is meant to be sort of calming. This is meant to be very encouraging. This is the image of the man who is blessed, the tree that does not wither. It's planted by the streams of water and it's very, very healthy. Back to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Apply the same imagery there. Think about that for just a second. It's the tree planted by the streams of water because your transgression is forgiven. Keep that in mind because we're gonna start thinking about just how good that is as we go along. So are your, are you covered by the uh, blood of Jesus Christ? Are your transgressions forgiven? Then you are, this is a declarative statement, you are blessed. Does it matter if you feel that way? You may not feel that way when you walked in this morning. I know I didn't as we're starting to talk about repentance. This thing, this was actually really difficult for me to put together. One, because I just couldn't get into the rhythm to write the outline down and just get the thoughts on paper. It was just really difficult. I don't know why. But also, I am talking to myself more than anybody else here because I need to hear this, that this is your state if you are in Jesus Christ, whether or not you feel that way, because even though I will say these things, and I do mean them, I need to hear them just as much as anybody else does because sometimes this just doesn't sink in. And so the image of the tree planted by streams of water, the actual thing of you are forgiven, therefore you are blessed. I need that just as much as anybody else does. So hopefully that's helpful as we've started to consider that image. To uh, talk about some of the, last, the other specifics again, let's move on to verse two. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does that mean? Well, so does that mean that, hey, you know, in and of yourself, you're just, you're clean. You just don't have any kind of guile or 
lying spirit or you just never say lies, is that what that means? No, because remember, and this is going to come up again, it's a bicolon. The second line magnifies the, what was said in the first, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, so that's the condition, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Both Calvin and Spurgeon will agree that this really isn't um, in and of yourself. This is somebody who is acted on by God so that you are not under any kind of delusion by the devil that you're okay, right? That you, in and of yourself, without forgiveness, are okay. That's the image we're talking about here. Not, you know, I don't have any deceit and I'm gonna move on and I'm okay, but rather it's because the Lord counts no iniquity against you and you live in that state and you are not lying to yourself that you are not sinful, right? First John, if we say we have not sinned, we lie and the truth is not in us, that's kind of what we're talking about here. So now that we've talked about the blessing, we've got that image in our mind, let's contrast that with when that sin that is in us stays unconfessed. Let's look at verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me in my groaning all day long. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So this is a, a picture of, of no repentance at all, right? Uh, or it's either no repentance or unconfessed sin. I think I'm going to take the tack here that this is for the believer who has unconfessed sin or his or her heart. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about an unconverted person we can talk about that later, but I'd like to focus on the believer who has unconfessed sin. So what is it? What does it produce? You hear rottenness in the bones, groaning. Keep in mind that this is not necessarily, uh, this is a, these are natural consequences, right? And this is also caused through those natural consequences by the hand of God himself. There's a couple of um, uh, particular consequences we can think of. One that immediately pops to mind is in 1 Peter 3, 7, which says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The idea there is that husbands, leaders of the family, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, your prayers, particularly with how you're interacting with your wife, your prayers are hindered. And so confess that, be in right relationship with both you and God so that those prayers are not hindered. And if you are praying, Lord, I need something and you're not being answered because day and night, and back to the Psalms now, Psalm 32 verse four, day and night your hand is heavy upon me. That is one of those natural consequences. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And then we have another very strong image and that's a very uh, good day for it to be talking about it. For my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I'm gonna steal this image from R.C. Sproul. I'm gonna use one of my own. Sproul talks about this as the, like the image of the wadi, the dry um, gulch or the arroyo, the dried up land that you've got the flash flood that comes through and you can see that water has been there and then is there no more. It's dried up by the heat of summer and sort of ironic that we're talking about it on the very hottest day of the year so far. That's kind of a big deal. This is what happens to your soul when there was water there, but not anymore, right? Um, and then dry, your strength was dried up. So for example, on Friday, sitting in my office, it's a really nice, cool 73, 74 degrees in my office. It's really nice in there. If your office isn't that way, I'm so sorry. 
But so there I am, I'm sitting there, and somebody goes, hey, sir, are you, do you know that there's an event going on uh, across the street? Uh, we're going to say congratulations to someone just got promoted. I'm like, oh, fantastic. That's great. How, where is it? Oh, it's the club. All right. Well, that's what? It's about 200-ish yards away. I can walk. That's not a big deal. So I leave my nice air-conditioned office, and I walk across the street, and this is like two, 300 yards, not far at all, where, you know, if normal weather, it'd be okay. Uh, but I leave my nice air-conditioned office, and it's like 108 outside, maybe 111, give or take. Either way, it's pretty warm. You walk all the way across the, the thing, and you walk into the club, which is, which is air-conditioned again, and you kind of walk in, and you're like, wow. I wasn't feeling bad when I was outside, but I feel bad now right? I'm not necessarily destroyed, but I, like, I cannot function normally. There's just something that's off, right? And then I walk back. So we go to the event. event's great. I walk back to my office, and I realize the back door's locked, and I don't have the key to the back door, but I have the key to the front door. So I could walk all the way around, unlock the front door, walk in, get my stuff that I kept in the office in the back of my car, start my car. It's who knows how hot it is in there. The thermometer says it's 111, but it's probably even warmer than that. And then off we go home, and it takes a while for the air conditioner to cool down. All the while, you're like, oh, for goodness sake. <sighs> That's the image of, are you dead? No. Uh, but, boy, was I not quite right. There I am drinking water like it's my job. I'm sweating through my T-shirt, and I, you just don't feel quite right. That's the image we're talking about here. This is what happens to us when we have the unconfessed sin uh, in our life. So what are we supposed to do with this? Really, why does God do this to us? You know, God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. That's what we're supposed to do. And how do we do it? Well, let's take a look at the next couple of verses. Oddly enough, it's pretty simple. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Well, so what are we supposed to do about your sin? Repent. How? Well, that's about as simple as it gets right there. Acknowledge your sin to God and do not cover your iniquity. I'm going to open up the Westminster Confession. This has got a couple of things to say to us. In chapter 15, uh, it talks about, you know, repentance unto life and how are we supposed to uh, deal with our sin. I'm going to read chapter 15, paragraph 5, and paragraph 6. It's a little instructive. Here we go. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Paragraph 6. As every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, and they cite Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 here as scriptural proof text, uh, make private confession for his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and forsaking of them he shall find mercy, so that he, uh, so he that scandalizeth his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended, who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. So we have a little bit of instruction about what exactly to do. Repent of your particular sins, particularly. And I'm borrowing from, uh, um, I can see his face. Sorry, we haven't been sleeping much in our house. Um, 
Gerstner, John Gerstner, as he says it in the, kind of his staccato, particular sins, particularly inside joke. You had to be there. Uh, in any case, uh, how do we do this? Uh, what that means is those little sins that we have done, don't just say, Lord, I have sinned, forgive me. But rather, if you lied, Lord, I lied. If you cheated, Lord, I cheated. If you take a look at maybe um, Zacchaeus, I have defrauded, and so I will pay back 10 times what I took. That's kind of our model. If we look over in Psalm 51, we get a little bit of a picture of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read the things I'm going to make, the, I think, the strongest points about. So I'm going to start with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Okay? Remember I said particular sins particularly? Where's the particular sin in there? Look at the title. Remember I said this is likely inspired to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. That's the particular sin. In case people think that this is being whitewashed, gone into is a very specific set of words that we see the whole Bible over, particularly in the Old Testament, and what it means is they slept together. That is 100% what that means in most of those cases, if not all. So there's your particular sin. I did this. To the choir master means that this is not only just going to be said to God, but rather to the whole country. Anybody who was in the choir as this was being sung or listening to the choir as this is being sung is hearing that David is asking for forgiveness. So when it talks in 15 chapter six, or in chapter 15 paragraph 6 of Westminster where if there's a public sin it ought to be confessed publicly, David is doing that right here. That's a point that I think we need to kind of take in for just a second. Also, um, if you remember last week, as we talked about the, the, the imprecatory psalms, as David is calling upon those imprecations or curses, rather, um, pouring out his heart to God, he is just overcome with grief or anger about what is happening to him. Uh, he's pouring out his heart in curses. This is an example of how he's now pouring out his heart in repentance. As we move on in Psalm 51, we get to kind of verses 12 to about 15 or 16, and we see kind of a different theme where it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What are we to make of that? You make this out of that, is that when the repentance happens, just like Psalm 32 says, I acknowledged my sin to you and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, it is done. Then get up and do what you're supposed to do. Which in, case, in this case, what did David said, then I will teach transgressors your ways. 
What is meant here is, what is, is in Psalm 32, the maskal, the instructional tool. David is now, I will teach transgressors your ways, and Psalm 32 is one of those ways. Did he sit and wallow in pity because he had sinned? Did he sit and feel sorry for himself? No. Did he accept the consequences? Yes, absolutely. He had judgment placed on him. He had to run from his own son. He had a son die. But is he going to let that stop him? No, he's going to continue with what God has asked him to do, which is lead the nation and prophesy. And so that's instructive for us. When we repent, it is over. If it is true repentance unto life and you have confessed your sin to God, you have acknowledged your sin to him and did not cover your iniquity, he will forgive the iniquity of your sin and that is over. David is showing us exactly with his own life and his own writing what that means and what that looks like and we can be encouraged that we can do that too because as God applies that to David, how has he proved that he will do that for us? It was at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So because that happened, that applies to us and therefore when you repent, accept the consequences and press on and then offer praise to God what do we to see that? I'm going to uh, be real clear with that in Psalm 103, but we see it at the end of 51. We also see it in 32. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So action follows repentance. Keep in mind, so how deep does this forgiveness go? It's not just the sin that's forgiven, but David is very clear that it's the iniquity of the sin. Is it, we're just compounding synonyms here? No, no, no. What we're doing is talking about, it's not just the sin, it's the dirtiness of the sin. It's covered. It's the legal declaration upon you that you are guilty has been removed. You still may feel guilt and shame, but you are no longer guilty. There's a difference there. Let me get to my notes here. So therefore, what are we supposed to do? Uh, well, if you are forgiven, like I said, uh, move on and then do something with it. What are you supposed to do? Well, what is your calling? We all have a general calling, so consider Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, which is the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, I'm not going to read it, but it's the list of the spiritual gifts that God has given for the equipping of the church. So however we are called to do that, don't let the sin that you have confessed stop you from doing what God has already asked you and called you to do. Then, praise God. And so how are we supposed to praise God? Now let's turn over to Psalm 103. This is also of David, again written later in his life. This is after David has experienced all of his bad stuff and keep in mind late in his life he can't even keep warm anymore. Uh, he's shivering so badly they have to have another uh, young lady sleep with him. That's another matter. We'll talk about that some other time. Um, but in any case, he is not feeling very well, but again, he writes these words based on his experience. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and it is in its place or in its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to the children's children and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and in his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So verses 1 and 2 tell us to bless the Lord. Verses 20 through 22 say the exact same thing. This is talking about not just praise but blessing. It's like the next degree. Spurgeon says this. Many are our faculties, emotions, and capacities, but God has given them all to us, and they ought all to join in chorus to his praise. Half-hearted, ill-conceived, unintelligent praises are not such as we should render to our loving Lord. If the law of justice demanded all our heart and soul and mind for the creator, much more may the law of gratitude put in a comprehensive claim for the homage of our whole being to the God of grace. If you read Spurgeon's commentary on this psalm, like it's like that, but over and over and over and over again. So that's how deep this goes, how much we ought to praise God because of what he has done for us and to remind ourselves that he has done these things for us in all our circumstances. What has he done for us that's specifically mentioned for us in verses two through five? His benefits, he forgives iniquity, heals diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. A brief aside, because my time is running short, a skeptic's gonna throw back at us, well, hey, he doesn't heal my diseases. I'm sick. Like, my kids were sick last week. My wife's sick today. He's not healed all our diseases. Oh, yeah? Well, take a look. Verse three is a bicolon. The second line informs the first. The first sets the tone for the second. Who forgives all your iniquities. So we're talking about iniquity here and heals all your diseases. So those are diseases of the heart, not necessarily physical diseases. That's how we're, gonna, um, that's how we're supposed to take that one. Um, so when a skeptic is telling you that, well, my diseases aren't healed, like, that's not what we're talking about. It's something different. Other imagery, we're talk, uh, talking about crowning you with steadfast love and mercy. Just real quick, as Americans, we don't think about having crowns very often. Like, we don't have kings and queens. It doesn't make sense to us. But think about this. Your average individual is a peasant, and if the peasant is crowned, that's a big deal. So imagine you hearing that as a peasant with nothing, going, I'm crowned because of God? That's pretty awesome. 
We see his benefits in verses 3 through 5. We see God's character in verses 6 through 14. And I'm going to skip forward just a little bit here. I'm going to basically say that the central theme or the, the middle here is defined roughly in about verses 10 through 13. So what are we supposed to take about here? What is the main point that uh, the psalmist David here wants us to walk away with? He, God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is why Spurgeon says the things he does. This is what we're supposed to take away from this and why we're supposed to be so thankful. Why should I thank God? Why should I bless the Lord? That's why. It's a big deal. If you need any more convincing, uh, take a look at verse 14. For he, God, knows our frame. I'm going to imitate sprawl here. And he remembers that we are dust. You know, that little, sorry, more inside jokes. Knock it off, Ryan. For a man is, uh, as for a man, his days are like grass, and he flourishes like a flower of the field. God formed us out of the dust, and even so, he is merciful and gracious to us, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. And he goes on. A couple of things else uh, to think about here is uh, for those who fear him is mentioned three times in the text. Uh, so what is God's reaction or uh, action towards those who fear God? In verse 11, he shows steadfast love. In verse 13, he shows compassion. In verse 17, he shows steadfast love from everlasting to everlasting. So to cast the fear, the healthy fear and respect and awe of the Lord in a positive light, what are, uh, what are we to expect for healthy respect and fear and awe of God? Steadfast love, compassion. Steadfast love not only now, but for everlasting to everlasting. Lastly, 103 concludes with a threefold command for both the natural and the supernatural. So if, you know, bless you his angels, bless the Lord all his hosts. You know, hosts, other translations say the Lord of hosts is the Lord of heaven's armies. So the hosts are his armies of angels. Hosts is ministers who do his will. And think of like armies, whatever his will is, you know, the destroying angel, not only just the ministering spirit, but like the, the ones who are gonna execute judgment, praise, bless the Lord. It's a command for them, not only us, but his messengers, his angelic hosts to bless him. So why should we do that too? Yes. Do we feel like doing that all the time? No. Do I feel like doing that right this instant, if I'm honest? No. But that's what these words are for. Think of Psalm 32 and 51 as a confession. Think of 103 not only as a direction to praise God, but an assurance of pardon for which we should praise God. So then, why are these psalms now for you? There's a lot of we's in at least in 103. Why is it for you? What should we or you as an individual do with them? If you need to repent, use the penitentiary psalms or the psalms of repentance. And I've got them listed out there. There's several. You can use those words. And 
confess your sin to God and it will also remind you, just like 32 says, is if I acknowledge my sin to you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Be assured that your true God-granted repentance, because of that repentance that God is granting to you, you will receive mercy, you will be forgiven. You are forgiven and so do and return to the calling God gave to you, right? Some things like, what am I called to do? So there's a bit, huge question. Some things are pretty evident. Like, I'm a husband, I'm a father. Therefore, God has called me to be a husband and a father. Have I sinned towards my wife and my children? Yep, all the time. Confess it, go back to being a good husband and a father has been called to. So that's how it applies to me and how it can apply in your life or in, in accordance with your calling and your circumstances. Like I said, remember their guide there is Psalm 51 verse 30, uh, 13. Then after all this repentance, I will teach transgressors your ways and then give thanks and bless the Lord. In Romans 8, uh, 1 through 4, I'm gonna conclude there with that verse. And while I'm turning there, remember David is saying all these things after being forgiven for adultery and murder and a whole slew of other things. And he is able to say with us, or just like us, God forgive me, now I'm going to carry on. So be, if he can do that for adultery and murder, then I can do that for anger against my wife and children. Romans chapter eight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin, and, of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin, sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. I'm sorry, if those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So keep that in mind. These Psalms are for us or for you in particular. Uh, and with that, I left myself five uh, minutes for some questions. Does anybody have any? Or have I just covered it so uh, comprehensively that there are none? <laughs> Questions, comments? Good deal. Well, let me pray. And we'll be dismissed and we'll get ready to worship. Father in heaven, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him, for you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Father in heaven, help me in particular and us here assembled together know that that is true, that we can walk because you have forgiven us, that we need to remember that you have forgiven us, and that we need to be thankful to you because you have forgiven us. Father, I pray that you would be uh, with Pastor Tim this morning as he preaches, uh, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word, and that we'd be grateful for the ability to come and worship you freely together. Thank you, Father. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.